Hi, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm Managing Editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing, a mass device resource. The medical device industry lately has been taking a lot of heat when it comes to patient safety. There's the recent International Consortium of Investigative Journalists Implant Files report. And then there's also been the documentary Bleeding Edge on Netflix. Both paint a picture of lax medical device regulation resulting in patients exposed to poorly tested implants. Uh, industry sources complain that the reports are rehashing old news, but is it merely a coincidence that FDA has been making moves to reassure the public about medical device safety? To help us sort through what's going on, we have Mike Drews. Mike is a regulatory consultant who has years of experience working with both medical device companies and the FDA. Mike, welcome to MDO. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Yeah. So, I mean, to start, I mean, what do you think of implant files and bleeding edge? I mean, how... How valid are their critiques? Well, I think, uh, you know, there are a number of uh, uh, valid criticisms that they make, um, and we can certainly talk about them. Yeah, Um, is the sky falling? Is the sky falling? Are we... uh... (laughs) Well, you know, it's a good question, Chris. If the sky is falling, it's been happening for a very long time. Right. You know, one of the things that amazes me is how so many people, both in industry as well as at FDA, think that a lot of the discussions that we're having right now are new. And perhaps I'm getting old, Chris, but I don't see any of this as new. Many of these issues go back to when FDA first started regulating medical devices in 1976. And, you know, beyond just a couple of uh, items from the popular press that you're referring to, like the bleeding edge, uh, I just thought I would mention a couple of my favored articles over the years, um, and we can provide links on the website for the people in the audience who are interested, starting with an article from Consumer Reports magazine from 2012 called Dangerous Medical Devices, Most Medical Implants Have Never Been Tested for Safety. Prior to that, in 2006, there was a cover story article in Forbes magazine called Dangerous Devices, 20 Million Americans Walking Around with High-Tech Medical Gear Grinding Away Inside Them. Are they safe? And some of the devices they talked about in that article from uh, a little over a decade ago now were stents, defibrillators, spinal discs, and artificial knees. And actually, going back furthest, Uh, There was an article, Chris, believe it or not, in Popular Mechanics in 1971 called Danger in the Hospital. In the growing field of medical devices, there are no standards for safety or performance. Until they're established, hospitals have no guarantee that equipment will operate properly or even that it won't kill you. Uh, And that article from Popular Mechanics came out five years before FDA started regulating medical devices. So... Bottom line, Chris, these are all very important issues. There's no question about it. But uh, but these are not uh, new issues at all, in, at least in my opinion. Simply put, there have been lots of problems um, with certain medical devices in the past, just like there have been problems with certain drugs in the past. But the most important thing for us to talk about now is what do we do to prevent them? Right. How do we prevent more from happening? I know when... Um you know, looking at the implant files report, I mean, kind of one of the biggest takeaways I saw from it was, you know, the 510k process has a lot of a lot of problems. Um, which, I mean, frankly, I mean, I've I've been following this industry uh, only a fraction of the time you have, and I even know in just like the past decade, I mean, people have been complaining about the 510k process, but um, it, it's something else when you have a, a report like that that pulls so much stuff together, which 
yeah, we, we've covered it and we know about it because, you know, we're more, you know, people really, really follow in the industry. But um, you pull in all that stories together and say something's wrong with the 510K process. It has a uh, it has a different effect, it seems. I mean, do, do you think I'm thinking of that correctly? Well, to be fair, Chris, I'm not sure that I would say that the 510K has a lot of problems. It yeah. certainly has some, some potential problems. It's not a perfect program. Right. Uh, it's overall a pretty good program, but it's no means perfect, and we can talk about that more in just a second. I do think, though, it's important to put things in perspective. Coming back to your comment a moment ago, is the sky falling? Well, the simple reality is, and as a, and as a <clears throat> member of the press, Chris, you probably understand this better than I do, uh, bad news sells. Good news doesn't sell. And the problem is, in all of these stories, whether it's any that I just mentioned or Bleeding Edge or, or uh, any of the others, um, they don't you know, they don't spend any time talking about the thousands and thousands of medical devices that are used every day that actually help people. Instead, they simply focus on those small number of devices that are regrettably problematic. Uh, so we do have to put things in, in perspective. I think that's, that's true. That, you know, all of us remember. That is true. I mean, yeah, I mean, things go, go badly with medical devices. It's, it can be really, really bad, but at the same time, it's, it's a fraction of, uh, of what's out there. So it's, it's, it's exactly. But coming back to your question about the 510k, uh, listen, as, as you and your audience may remember, um, about six or, or maybe even eight years ago uh, now, the Institute of Medicine came out uh, in their infamous report, basically recommending to the FDA that they completely throw away the 510k. Uh, yeah. And I've said publicly many times, Chris, I'm adamantly against that. I said, uh, you know, as I said a moment ago, the 510K is a pretty good program. It is by no means a perfect program. It's pretty good. But if we were to just simply throw it away, that would create a whole bunch of other problems because we would be treating all medical devices as if they were the same. We would be treating Band-Aids in the same way as artificial hearts. And to me, that makes absolutely no sense. But that, isn't that and why I we, add, I, I, just, sorry, to be a, just to be a devil's advocate here, I mean, isn't that why you have a classification system, though? I mean, so that... You know, okay, like the way we handle like a application for something like a Band-Aid is going to be, you know, different than uh, the pacemaker we're putting in somebody. That is correct. You're exactly right. That is why we have the classification system. But if it if we were to take the 510K option completely off the table, that would limit companies tremendously. Um, you know, the only other option un under the, the current regulation for class two and less devices would be the de novo. And the de novo is a, is a wonderful pathway to market. I'm a huge fan of the de novo. Um, but like everything, there are advantages and disadvantages compared to the, yeah. to the 510K. I thought, um, I mean, what, why do we need a 510K? <laughs> so the premise of the 510K is fairly simple. If our device is basically the same, i.e. substantially equivalent to another device that's already on the market, um, what we call a predicate device. And when I say basically the same, what I mean is both in terms of labeling as well as in terms of technology. If we can show that our device is the same as another device on the market in terms of labeling and technology, then we essentially do not have to reinvent the wheel. That is, 
we can hang our hat on much of the testing that was done on the previous device uh, and be able to bring that device onto the market with a much lower regulatory burden, that is, much less testing and much less scrutiny than what would otherwise be required if it was a truly new or novel device. Yeah, it's kind of um, like, uh, like uh, okay, we have a knee, knee implant that's already out there on the market. We're going to add a sensor to it. You know, you, that company that's doing that shouldn't have to, like, jump through all the hoops to prove that the knee implant's safe again. They just have to prove that this new innovation that they're adding to it, like the sensor or whatever, isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to throw a wrench into it and cause more problems. That's correct, Chris, although I do, uh, uh, I would mention for, for you and your audience a few things to remember. First of all, the concept of the 510K or substantial equivalence is unique to the medical device world. There's absolutely nothing similar to it in the drug world. That's point number one. Point number two, uh, a few of the past FDA commissioners have now come out more recently um, being critical of the 510K, um, reminding everybody that when the 510K was originally created in 1976 by Congress, it was intended to be the exception, not the rule. Today, it's become sort of the rule, not the exception. Yeah, so, it seems like, uh, and it seems like we've had too many, like, really bad recalls involving 510k devices i mean that kind of like i mean raises the question of um you know is do we have too many cases where something went through a 510k process that was actually a lot newer a lot more in, like different than what the uh, the company w was claiming just because they were trying to go through that easier regulatory process well, Chris, fundamentally, you're asking a question that the medical device industry has struggled with since the 510K was created in 1976, and that is, how different can two medical devices be, both in terms of labeling as well as technology, and yet still be similar enough, still be close enough to be substantially equivalent? And although FDA has put out a number of guidances over the last 40-plus years since the 510K was created... In my opinion, there's absolutely no answer to that question, none whatsoever. It's incumbent on us, meaning industry, meaning the company, to go to the FDA and say, here's our device. It is substantially equivalent to all of the, to this other device for all of the following reasons. Therefore, we're going to do it as a 510K. Or alternatively, here is our device. It's not substantially equivalent to any existing device for all of the following reasons. Therefore, uh, we're going to bring it onto the market as a de novo. That job is not, uh, that decision is not up to the FDA, quite frankly. That decision is up to us, uh, meaning right. industry or meaning companies. So it sounds like now the public has rediscovered again that medical devices can be really dangerous. And what's, what's the FDA doing in response? So, good question, Chris. So, there are a number of proposed changes uh, that people are talking about. Uh, and again, I just want to remind everybody that there's nothing really new here. Uh, one of the proposed changes is this so-called 10-day rule for substantial equivalence. Uh, uh, sorry, 10-year rule for substantial equivalence. The idea is right now the regulation says that in order for us to use the 510K, we have to show our device is substantially equivalent to another device. There's no regulatory requirement that says how 
uh, how um, new or how old that predicate device can be. In other words, I can use a predicate device that was brought onto the market one year ago, or I could use a predicate that was brought onto the market 40 years ago. So to address the problem of predicate creep, and people have been known about predicate creep since, you know, 1976 when this when the 510K was created. Some people yeah. have suggested that we that we put a limitation uh, of time in this particular case 10 years we can only use devices as predicates that were brought onto the market uh, uh within the last 10 years. For what it's worth, Chris, and we've had this discussion at FDA many times over the years, I'm adamantly against that suggestion because that's going to hamstring me as a regulatory professional, as a biomedical engineer, for making the uh, the most appropriate predicate selection. In other words, if it's to my advantage to use a device that was brought onto the market one year ago as a predicate, I will. On the other hand, if it's to my advantage to bring to use a device as a predicate that was brought onto the market 25 years ago, I want to be able to do that as well. However, there is a caveat to that, Chris. Uh, I do think that we need to be responsible for our decisions. If I go to the FDA, for example, and say, I'm going to use this device uh, that was brought onto the market 25 years ago as a predicate, before I tell you why I'm using that device, you probably know there are other more recent devices that I might use. Let me tell you why I'm not using those devices. In other words, I don't want to justify just simply what I do, Chris. I want to justify what I'm not doing as well because I want to take away every possible opportunity I can for FDA to disagree with me. So one of the changes being proposed is this 10-year rule, which personally I'm against, but there's advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Um, uh, does that make sense, Chris? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, the, the predicate creep is, I mean, the big, the big worry is that, you know, okay, you do a predicate of a predicate of a predicate of a predicate. I mean, eventually, you know, you, you, you know, you started out with a, you know, with a, um, you know, with a, with a, with a chicken, and you ended up with a duck at the end. You know, so you want to. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that metaphor, Chris. And this is, in my opinion, this is one of the most legitimate criticisms of the 510K, and that is this phenomenon of predicate creep. And believe me, it needs to be addressed. There's no question about it. I'm just not convinced that imposing an arbitrary time limit of, in this case, 10 years, is the best way to do it. As a matter of fact. When you look at some statistics, only about 20% of medical devices that have been brought onto the market under the 510K have used a predicate that was more than 10 years old. So 80% of the devices would not be even affected by this rule. Yeah. Um, so, listen, it's generating some discussion within the industry as well as FDA. Discussion communication is always the first step to solving any problem. I just don't think that that's a particularly good solution. Now, our callers talks to like, okay, well, maybe we do more de novos versus five ten Ks, but you're just saying before like there's, you know, there, there's some real there's some downsides with de novos as well. I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. So I've noticed a very very recent trend, Chris, based on my own personal experience, as you know, as a regulatory consultant, I do a lot of pre-subs at FDA. I'm down there about once a month, in some cases more. Just over the last, say, one or two months, um, I've had uh, a few devices now that we've brought to the FDA with strong um, uh, uh, strong cases to bring them down to the market as a 510K. 
FDA is pushing back hard in these cases, uh, wanting the company to do a de novo instead. I'm not adverse to doing a de novo. As a matter of fact, I think there's a lot of advantages of the de novo. But the reason why I bring it up here is because no regulation has changed and yet FDA is taking a, uh, seems to be, I only have a few data points now, but seems to be taking a more liberal interpretation of the regulation that has been in place uh, since 1976, specifically the, reg the regulation around substantial equivalence and also specifically regarding the regulation around risk. So I want to just point out to, to, to all in the audience that nothing in the regulation for the 510K has changed since it was created in 1976. But what is changing is the way people interpret it. As I often say, Chris, regulation is all about the interpretation of words and our ability to defend our interpretation. The, the words themselves have not changed at all, not one word, not one punctuation mark. But what has changed and what is changing and what will probably continue to change is interpretation of these words. And by the way, one other thing, Chris, I would mention, with all due respect to my many friends at FDA, it amazes me how many people think that the way the FDA interprets a certain set of words is the only way or the best way. It's absolutely not. FDA can interpret a certain set of words one way, and I can interpret, interpret exactly the same set of words a completely different way. The question is, who is right and who is wrong? Well, this is one of the many reasons why I'm such a fan of taking technologies to the FDA in advance in the form of a pre-sub to say, hey, here's what the regulation says, here's what the words are, and here is our interpretation, and here is why is our interpretation is appropriate. Yeah, I know. Sense? I know you. You've had a. I've. We've had this. Uh, you've had that point before that it's a lot better to to go to them at a pre-sub and say this is what we want to do. Pause. What do you think? You know, versus like waiting for them to tell you what to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So and so so if this trend continues, and again, this is just potentially the beginnings of a trend. Don't be surprised, Chris, and remember, audience, you heard it here first. Don't be surprised in the coming months and years we will see more de novos and fewer 510Ks, which, by the way, I personally think is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, one of the downsides, one of the criticisms that I have of the 510K, Chris, not so much as a regulatory per professional, but as a professional biomedical engineer, is it encourages companies to bring out medical devices that we already have. In other words, if one of the most common questions I get from companies, they say, we want to do a 510K, what's the easiest way to get our device onto the market? I say, look, it's very simple from a regulatory perspective. My advice is, is, is this. Design your device to be as close as you possibly can, right. both in terms of labeling and technology, to the existing device. You know, so it's an, it's an incentive for companies to bring out devices that we already have and a disincentive for companies to bring out something truly new or novel. You know, in academia, Chris, we call that plagiarism. But in the medical device industry, we right. do it all the time. It's it's a way so, uh, to you know to like yeah to make your regulatory process easier and you know and I myself I mean I've sat at conferences and heard you know people who had designed medical devices saying like well this 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 component could have been you know more efficient but we use this one instead because it was already in other devices and that was one and, less and thing. And let me be, let me be crystal clear, Chris, because this is one of the things that differentiates my approach to so many others in this game. 
if it's to my advantage to follow in somebody else's footsteps, to do a 510K, for example, then I'll be the first to, to do that, and I will literally put in 72-point font in my PowerPoint when I go to FDA. I'm doing nothing more than the folks before me did. End of discussion. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you in the you-know-what on the way out. However, if it's not to my advantage or if it's not possible to follow in somebody else's footsteps, then I'll be, I'll be the first to work with FDA uh, in order to carve out a new path. Because if you're, here's something to think about, Chris. If you're following in somebody else's footsteps, and let's be honest, that's what the vast majority of people in our industry do. If you follow in somebody else's footsteps, there's one thing I can guarantee, and that is you'll never go anywhere new. I refuse, as a regulatory professional, to use the FDA or to use regulation as an excuse to hold us back. So if a company comes to me, you know, uh, come, um, I, I used to live in Boston for a very long time. Right. If a company comes to me and says, you know, we have a wicked cool new medical device. <laughs> it's not, you know, similar to anything that we that we have on the market now. I will do ever I can, everything I can to help them get it through the FDA or Health Canada or wherever it is. Um, but I think there's just too much uh, excuse here people blaming FDA or blaming regulation uh, that we can't get devices onto the market. And I just think that's very unfortunate. So is more rigorous post-market surveillance an answer? Well, it's part of the answer, Chris. Um, Post-market surveillance, let's be very honest here, is not something that our industry has done a good job on historically. Uh, And I think that, you know, regulatory requirements aside, I think that any medical device company has an obligation, perhaps you might want to call it an ethical obligation, once we bring our product onto the market, to continue to follow that product, to monitor that product, to make sure it's working the way, in fact, we intended it to work. Um, And so, uh, you know, simply put, this is something that we should all be doing anyway. I would like to think that companies would do this not because FDA or somebody else tells them that they have to. I would like to think they would do it because it is the right thing to do. But unfortunately, Chris, I did not fall off the the turnip truck yesterday. (laughs) I know that uh, sometimes companies don't do things unless they're absolutely required to do it. You know, one trend I've noticed is that more payers are are demanding, uh, like, information about outcomes in order to cover things i mean is it could that make is that going to make a difference i think that's an excellent point chris i think it's making a huge difference because uh you know a lot of people think that fda has a lot of power well fda has power no question about it but comparatively speaking i think cms the centers for medicare and medicaid services has a heck of a lot more power than fda does it's sort of a spin on the golden rule chris he who controls the gold makes the rules. Yeah. You know, so in many ways, and this is a topic for a completely different discussion, in many ways it's very easy to get a device to the FDA and onto the market, but to get reimbursement for it, uh, that is a, is a totally different animal. I like there's more scrutiny coming anyway that the, uh, the, the, the Medicare or even like the private insurers are going to be you know, demanding more, more data on whether stuff's actually working. So, so you better make sure your devices actually work if you actually want to solve them. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the current uh, FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, one of the things that uh, the ideas that he's talked about in the past is that perhaps FDA should only be responsible for evaluating the safety of the product and not the efficacy. 
that we should that we should drop all efficacy uh, requirements from FDA regulation. Now, what people who talk about that, I don't want to be misunderstood here. They're not saying that efficacy is not important. What they're saying is that CMS is in a much better position to judge efficacy than FDA is. Uh, so it's an interesting idea, and again, it yeah. could be a topic of a different discussion. Yeah, it could be interesting. Okay, so to wrap this up, what what should medical device companies do now? So great question, Chris. So moving forward, I have a few final thoughts. First of all, they should definitely be aware of all of the press, good, bad, and ugly, not just the technical press like your publications, but the popular press as well, including you know some of the articles that I've mentioned earlier. Um, they should uh, be be aware of problems not just with their own particular device, but with similar devices. You know, I find it interesting uh, that there is no regulatory or quality requirement when it comes to post-market surveillance to look for problems with similar devices. I think that if you're bringing a device onto the market under the 510K and you use another device as a predicate in your uh, regulatory or quality system, you should have, uh, when it comes to post-market surveillance, you should be um, monitoring problems for similar devices because <clears throat> if you have a the problem with a similar device, it stands to reason that that problem might affect your device as well. At the very least, you should have some sort of an investigation to find out. And coincidentally, I'm involved in a product liability case right now where that, in fact, is the case. There were significant problems with a predicate device that the company was not aware of because they, quite frankly, were not monitoring for problems with the predicate device. And as a result, can you say ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching? Right. Um, right. And also to be aware of the ideas that are being discussed, like, for example, the 10-year uh, uh, substantial equivalence limitation and some of the other things that we, we talked about earlier. So like be aware doing, of, yeah. of... Exactly. Be, be aware of what's going on. Uh, second, and I've talked about this a lot of times... The best way to know and, what's going on is to listen to podcasts on medical design outsourcing. So I think that's the way... Absolutely, Give us a little plug here. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I could not agree with you more. Thank know, you for pointing that I, out. I know we covered the, the pre-sub. Yeah, definitely try to do those pre-subs. And then, um, I mean, yeah, I mean gosh. With I mean, overall, it sounds like the biggest thing is do the right thing. I mean, do you think, I mean, am I thinking of that right? That's really like, you know, you need to be asking that, if we're doing the right thing. That's absolutely correct, Chris. You know, this is not rocket science. You know, the, the best way to avoid finding problems is to do all that we can to, to design safe and effective and good, good medical devices. You know, it's interesting, Chris. I hear a lot of my colleagues say that their goal is uh, to achieve regulatory compliance or quality compliance. Well, to me, that's a pretty low place to set the bar. Think about it this way, Chris. When a company gets a 510K clearance, when they get uh, a de novo granted, when they get a PMA approved, when they get a CE mark, when they get a ISO blah, blah, blah certified, all that means is they're passing. You know, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. That does not mean that you're making a safe and effective product. It certainly does not mean that you're making a good product. So I think we as medical device professionals and as industry should be aiming for more than just simply compliance. Right, as exactly. As I've said before, Chris, you know, there's no better way to ensure that we have more regulation in the future than 
for companies and for the people in them to do genuinely, continue to do genuinely stupid things. And I hate to say it, Chris, I, I really, I, I get no pleasure in saying this, but as a uh, regulatory consultant, as a professional biomedical engineer with more than 25 years of experience playing this game, uh, I see frequently companies doing some genuinely stupid things. So... You want to prevent problems like that? You know, stop doing stupid things. <laughs> Just twist that. So it sounds like it should be two sentences. Do the right thing and don't do stupid things. Here we there go. you go. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you for that for that's, that clarification. That's the whole, here we go. That's our whole our, our big takeaway. Well, well, Mike, as usual, it's been great. Thanks again for uh, coming on to MDO. Well, thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And if there's anything else I can do to help either you or your audience in the future, feel free to contact me. Sounds great. Again, this is Chris Newmarker, Managing Editor of MDO. Thanks again for listening.